Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hello, this is A History of Europe, Key Battles podcast. This is part five of the seven-part series on the Thirty Years' War and about the invasion of Gustavus Adolphus, King of Sweden. If you haven't yet listened to the four preceding episodes to get the background to this episode, might be a chance to listen now. But if you have already done so, then let's begin. Gustavus Adolphus arrived at the mouth of the Oder in July 1630 with an army of 13,600 men, boosted to 29,000 by September. The odds for a significant breakthrough looked remote. A campaign from the much more wealthy Danish kingdom had recently failed. Gustav had no real firm allies and needed a clear victory to persuade any potential allies to his side. The Holy Roman Emperor is reported on being told of the Swedish invasion, to have said dismissively, we have another small enemy, do we? The first task was to establish his bridgehead and a secure operational base for the arrival of supplies from Sweden. No imperial forces were sent to contest the landing. Their local commander, General Conti, withdrew his forces further up the Oder, allowing Gustavus to capture Stettin, the capital of Pomerania. The Duke there, Bogoslav Fourteenth of Pomerania, yielded to Swedish demands and under duress provided a force of 3,000 troops. In September, Imperial troops tried to retake Stettin and other small ports under Swedish control. The first significant breakthrough was not until late December when the Swedes launched a successful surprise attack on the town of Greifenhagen on the river Oder. The promised French assistance finally materialised for the Swedes on the 23rd of January with the signing of the Treaty of Barwada between the two sides. The French motivation was to hold back the growing power of their great rival, the Habsburgs. The French promised 200,000 thalers twice annually for the next five years in return for an obligation for the Swedes to maintain a force of 30,000 men in Germany. Gustavus was also made to promise not to disturb the domains of Maximilian of Bavaria, who had a secret alliance with France. The chief statesman of France at the time was Cardinal Armand Jean de Plessis, commonly referred to as Cardinal Richelieu, whom we will be hearing more from in the next episodes. Richelieu wanted to keep the treaty secret to disassociate France from the destruction it would cause. 
He was also concerned to safeguard Catholicism and insisted Gustavus guarantee freedom of worship in any German lands he conquered. Gustavus, though, insisted that the treaty be made public in order to encourage other states or principalities to also join in. Meanwhile, Gustavus continued his drive southwards up the Oder River Valley. The main imperial commander, the 72-year-old Count of Tilly, finally arrived in the area and attacked the town of Neubrandenburg. The Swedish garrison held out for a while, but the town was taken by storm and the defenders were all killed. Afterwards, instead of moving against the Swedes, Tilly sent Field Marshal Pappenheim to besiege the city of Magdeburg, where the Protestant city councillors had taken control and declared their support for Sweden. Gustavus wanted to come to the aid of Magdeburg, but his routes were blocked by the two most important Protestant states in this part of the country, Brandenburg and Saxony. He would have liked the help of both electors, but if not, then at least for them to stay neutral. After witnessing the crushing defeat of the Danes, both John George of Saxony and George William of Brandenburg were too wary to throw their lot in with the Swedes and risk facing the wrath of the Empire if they also failed. But they were also very displeased with the Emperor for his recent declaration of the Edict of Restitution. In April 1631, along with the other princes, they both signed a letter requesting the rescinding of the Edict, a word of consequences beyond their control if their demands were not met. Gustavus marched on to the city of Frankfurt on the Oder, which was captured in April 1631. The defenders were systematically killed in revenge for the murder of the Swedish garrison at Neubrandenburg. The war was getting ugly and would get worse. Meanwhile, a problem for the Count of Tilly was that although he had been given command of the imperial forces, the granaries and storehouses were still in the hands of the sacked commander Wallenstein, who refused to provision Tilly without prior payment. Tilly was in despair, as without food or money, his men were deserting daily. Magdeburg enjoyed a position of key strategic importance on the River Elbe, but its chief interest for Tilly was that it was well stocked with provisions. The infamous Siege of Magdeburg began on the 20th of March 1631. After two months, Pappenheim convinced Tilly, who had brought reinforcements to storm the city with 40,000 men. In the early morning of 20th of May, the attack began with heavy artillery fire. Soon afterwards, Pappenheim and Tilly launched infantry attacks. The fortifications were breached. Imperial forces were able to overpower the defenders, and soon the entire army entered the city and plundered its rich store of goods. The worst massacre of the Thirty Years' War, of which there were many, had begun. The hungry imperial soldiers exacted a devastating retribution from the helpless townsfolk. As they plundered, raped and pillaged, fires ignited around the city and turned the narrow wooden streets into raging infernos, which took three days to burn themselves out, leaving Magdeburg in charred ruins. 
Henrik Lund writes that of a population of 30,000, less than 5,000 survived the fires and the killing. Tilly almost certainly didn't order the city to be satellite, but he was responsible for losing control of his troops. The sack of Magdeburg went down in infamy and shocked the whole of Europe, particularly Germany, where it is remembered to this day. Immediately, it had a significant political effect, shaking the already fragile relationships between Emperor Ferdinand II and the Protestant princes. Thousands of pamphlets appeared all over Germany, accusing Ferdinand of wanting to turn the empire to an absolute monarchy like Spain, and of stopping at nothing to achieve it. Throughout Germany, Protestant princes mobilised their armies, although they still stopped short of declaring for Gustavus. He was criticised by some for failing to come to the aid of Magdeburg, but he issued an angry statement putting the blame on the elector of Saxony for denying Swedish passage through his territory. The reaction was not just limited to Germany. The Dutch concluded a treaty with Gustavus shortly afterwards, on May the 31st, with pledges of subsidies for the Swedish army. Gustavus was still concerned about keeping a line of communication to the northern coast. To rectify the situation, he appeared in Berlin, capital of Brandenburg, with a small force and gave his brother-in-law a blunt ultimatum. George William was persuaded to work together and promised to subsidise the Swedish army. Tilly did not move against the Swedes as anticipated. This gave Gustavus the opportunity to strengthen his position in Brandenburg and Pomerania. He captured all of Mecklenburg except the cities of Rostock, Wiesmar and Donitz, and reinstated the Duke of Mecklenburg, who had earlier been evicted by the Emperor. Momentum was now undoubtedly with the Swedish. By early summer 1631, they controlled northeastern Germany, and Gustavus pushed on to Verben, on the confluence of the rivers Elbe and Haven. Here, Tilly caught up with them, anxious for battle. He had expected to catch the Swedes unprepared, but they had been trained to immediately prepare defensive position wherever they stopped. The Imperial cannons were ordered to fire on the Swedish position, which immediately replied in kind. The first day of the Battle of Urban was otherwise limited to sorties and skirmishing. The next day, Tilly launched a full-scale assault on the Swedish entrenchments, but that was met by a heavy response from the enemy artillery and musketeers. As the Imperial infantry withdrew, they were struck in the flank by the Swedish cavalry and suffered heavy losses, estimated at 6,000 killed or wounded. Many troops also deserted after the rout. Tilly then received orders from Emperor Ferdinand to move against Saxony and to force Elector John George to pledge allegiance to the Emperor. Tilly also desperately needed supplies and knew they could be found in Saxony, which had hitherto been unscathed by the conflict. The news of a big imperial army entering his lands energised John George into abandoning his policy of neutrality and throwing in his lot with Gustavus, and a treaty was signed between the two men on the 11th of September 1631. The Swedes agreed to provide protection for Saxony, and in return John George allowed his army to be placed under Swedish command and pledged not to make separate peace with the Empire. On the 16th of September, the combined Swedish and Saxon army marched towards Leipzig to force Tilly to give battle.
the garrison of the city, unaware that help was on its way, had surrendered to imperial forces who took an enormous amount of plunder. The imperial army had to stop the looting and face the Swedes and the Allies in what was one of the largest battles of the whole Thirty Years' War, the Battle of Breitenfeld, 1631, a few miles north of Leipzig. The battle began around midday with a two-hour exchange of artillery fire, during which the Swedes demonstrated a much more rapid rate of firepower. Gustavus extended his troops to the west, intending to outflank the enemy. Seeing this, the Imperial commander Pappenheim led a charge, but was repulsed by Swedish troopers and musketeers. The Imperial cavalry rode forward another seven times, but each time got the worst of the exchange. Another Imperialist cavalry regiment, led by General Furstenberg, enjoyed more success against the Saxons, most of whom fled. Furstenberg, though, was unable to rally his soldiers, many of whom were pursuing the Saxons or plundering their baggage. After two hours of fruitless attacks, Pabentine men were exhausted. They were routed when hit by Gustavus's counter-attack against the overstretched Imperial centre, just as Tilly's right began to collapse. Imperial resistance collapsed as dusk began to fall once the Swedes dragged their artillery within range. When over 7,000 Imperial soldiers were killed and a further 3,000 fugitives surrendered the next day. The Swedes lost 2,100 men, but more than made up for it by pressing Imperial prisoners into their army. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Breitenfeld was the first major defeat of the Catholic forces since the beginning of the war and stopped forever the previously irresistible drive by the Empire to turn all of Germany into a Catholic province. It also transformed the image of the Swedish king as the hero and protector of the Protestant cause. Protestant propagandists were quick to spread news of the success and make a call for arms, citing the victory as divine retribution for the sack of Magdeburg. Many Protestants hoped that Gustavus would now occupy Bohemia and restore Frederick V. Instead, Gustavus headed down the river Main, taking Frankfurt and then Mainz, one of the seats of the imperial archbishop electors, where he spent the winter. Much of the Lower Palatinate was conquered, while at the same time a second army completed the conquest of Mecklenburg. And at the same time, the elector, John George of Saxony, invaded Bohemia and occupied Prague with little resistance. 
Some historians, such as Henrik Lund, believe that at this moment, Gustavus missed a golden opportunity to strike at Vienna, the heart of the empire, at a time when the imperial leadership was demoralised and its armies shattered. But that would have been a very bold move, even by Gustavus's standards. It was a desperate time for Emperor Ferdinand. As well as having his main army wrecked, his Spanish allies were unable to assist, for they were seeking to fend off bankruptcy. Louis XIII of France and his chief minister, Cardinal Richelieu, were becoming more active in their efforts to wear down their rival Spain. In northern France, a small-scale French military command had inflicted a major blow on the Habsburgs, enabling Richelieu to close the Alpine Pass used as part of the Spanish line of communications. He also installed French garrisons in Lorraine, securing control of a major border area and setting up a new threat to the Spanish road. The Spanish, after their earlier success in the siege of Breda, had come too confident and overstretched. A key incident was the destruction by the Dutch of the Spanish treasure fleet from the Americas in 1628. The loss coincided with a serious decline in American silver output, which hit the Spanish war effort at a difficult moment. The Dutch army took advantage and launched new offensive operations, making modest but steady progress in the border regions of Flanders and Brabant. Ferdinand felt compelled to re-employ his former chief military commander, Wallenstein, as head of his army. The terms on which he accepted command have never been known, but there is little doubt that he demanded and secured a free conduct in the history of the war. His first action was to drive Elector John George from Bohemia and recover control of Prague. Meanwhile, as the spring of 1632 arrived, Gustavus headed south to invade Bavaria. His aims were to knock Bavaria out of the war, either by battle or by forcing terms. He also hoped to gain large amounts of supply from this as yet untouched territory, and probably also hoped to divert Wallenstein away from Bohemia. Gustavus led his army past Nuremberg in Swabia and arrived at the town of Donauwerth, situated on River Danube on the 26th of March. The town was taken quickly in a surprise assault, but victory was stained by the massacre of surrendering enemy soldiers. In mid-April, near the city of Rain, his army crossed the river Lech in the face of heavy fire from Tilly's army. The Battle of the Lech was a bruising encounter for both sides. The Swedes suffered about 2,000 casualties, the Imperial forces 3,000 to 4,000, including Field Marshal Tilly, who was mortally wounded by a cannonball that shattered his right thigh. He was carried off the field and died two weeks later. On the 17th of May, Gustavus's army captured Munich, the Bavarian capital, after Duke Maximilian had fled to Salzburg and imperial protection. Richelieu was forced to watch as the Swedes conquered Bavaria in spite of their alliance. The French dared not risk a war with the Swedes, who were in any case doing wonders for the anti-Habsburg cause. Gustavus hoped to bring Wallenstein to a showdown in southern Germany without abandoning his hard-won gains in Bavaria. He was aware that Wallenstein was moving against Prague. Wallenstein was trying to lure Gustavus back north to assist his ally or to convince Elector John George to break with his ally. 
Gustavus was concerned about becoming isolated from his bases along the Baltic, and although his forces had grown hugely over the last year, they were still in danger of being stretched too far. He therefore decided to head back north and entrenched himself in the city of Nuremberg when he learned that imperial detachments were already moving to intercept him. 6,000 peasants were employed to dig a huge ditch around the city. Wallenstein arrived at Nuremberg on the 17th of July and decided to try and starve the Swedes out. Gustavus was trapped with insurmountable supply problems since, as well as his 18,000 troops, the city's 40,000 inhabitants had been joined by about 100,000 refugees. On the 31st of August, the Swedish army tried to break out of the trap by attempting to siege a nearby old fortification, the Alta Vesta, but failed to do so despite repeated assaults. Disease began to take hold in the overcrowded Swedish camp. The situation was initially much better in the Imperial camp, but epidemics quickly spread with the hotter weather in August. Wallenstein's army was no longer operational after the Swedes captured a supply convoy and when he was unable to intercept the relief force of 3,000 wagons sent to join Gustavus. Gustavus realised his mistake getting caught in Nuremberg. In early September, he sought a way to break out and sent several sorties to the enemy. Fortunately for the Swedes and their allies, Wallenstein felt he was no longer able to maintain the siege and he withdrew. Gustavus then left the city and marched south, intending to winter in Swabia. However, hearing that Wallenstein was again threatening his Saxon ally, Gustavus rushed back north. Meanwhile, Field Marshal Pappenheim persuaded Wallenstein to let him lead a contingent of men to Westphalia, where the Swedes were known to be picking off garrisons. Gustavus raced east down the river Saale in the hope of forcing battle with Wallenstein. On hearing that Swedes were heading his way, the Imperial army halted at the small town of Lützen, a few kilometres southwest of Leipzig. Wallenstein immediately sent for Pappenheim to return as quickly as possible. To buy time, he also sent a small contingent which succeeded in holding up the Swedish advance for about four hours. This delay was to be highly significant for the battle that followed. Gustavus decided the delay had made it too late for the battle on the day and camped for the night. Gustavus's army comprised nearly 13,000 infantry, 6,200 cavalry and 20 heavy guns, a similar size to the imperial foe. Support was requested from Saxony, but John George declined to provide reinforcements. Gustavus used his customary deployment of two lines, with the cavalry on the flank strengthened with musketeers. The elite infantry stood at the front, while the king commanded most of the Swedish and Finnish cavalry on the right, and Bernard Weimar led the 3,000 mainly German soldiers on the left. The tactical problem for Gustavus was to dislodge the enemy from their defensive position and to do so quickly before Pappenheim's relief force could arrive. He hoped to begin the battle at dawn but had to wait for thick fog to disperse. As it lifted shortly after 10 o'clock, the Swedish artillery opened fire and the Imperial guns replied. After about an hour, the Swedish cavalry advanced and quickly scattered the Kurat frontline cavalry. Next, the Swedes encountered Imperial musketeers lying in wait in ditches, but drove them back from their positions. The Swedish left flank found it difficult to advance because the town of Lützen was in the way and had been set alight by the Imperialists. 
Gustavus led the charge on Wallenstein's left flank, who switched his cavalry from the right flank to fend off the attack. The Swedish offence was going well across the front, but visibility again became limited when the fog settled again and mixed with the smoke from the combat. Peter Wilson describes as follows, quote, Pappenheim arrived in the early afternoon with 2,300 cavalry, having ridden 35 kilometres through the night. His arrival encouraged the Croats to return, and together they drove the Swedes back across the road. The veteran Swedish infantry also suffered heavy casualties and fell back, having failed to dislodge the imperial centre. End quote. Although Pappenheim was shot dead early in his attack, his arrival was critical in helping the Imperial side to withstand the Swedish attacks. As the fighting progressed, units from both sides were breaking up. The battle disintegrated into isolated attacks by individual units. Gustavus appears to have got lost as he rode to rally his infantry. His entourage tried to lead him to safety, but amid the smoke, blundered into the confused cavalry many. There, Gustavus was hit by pistol fire, fell from his horse, was killed. News of the king's death quickly spread, but the Swedish officers reassigned their roles and continued fighting for another couple of hours. Momentum swayed back and forth, leaving both sides exhausted. The Swedes were on the point of retreating when they realised through the fog and smoke that the Imperial army had retreated themselves. The Swedes had lost 6,000 of their men, approximately a third of their army, through death, injury and desertion. Imperial losses are less clear, but probably about the same or lower. As for who won the battle, Richard Bonney in his book on the Thirty Years' War writes, quote, Historians consider the battle inconclusive, but by the military standards of the day, that is since Wallenstein had chosen to leave the field of battle, it was regarded as a Swedish victory, end quote. The real significance of the Battle of Lützen was the death of Gustavus. The Swedes continued fighting and soon after helped the Saxons evict the remaining imperial forces from the territory. But the whole purpose of the war had changed. The goal of Axel Oxenstierna, Sweden's chief minister, who now took control of affairs, was to extricate his country under the best possible terms. Thank you for listening to A History of Europe Key Battles. I hope you can join me next time when we continue with the Thirty Years' War, which takes a significant turn with the entry of the armies of France. You can get in touch either on the Facebook page of the podcast or you can write directly to carl, that's C-A-R-L, at historyeurope.net. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to support it, please go to patreon.com stroke history europe there you can sign up for just three dollars a month where you can also gain additional episodes the piece of music to see out this episode is again by giovanni palestrina and his deus sanctificatus hope you enjoy and speak to you again next week
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 